Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine on the Compliance Podcast Network. There are so many great things about doing this podcast, getting to work with my partner in compliance, Mary, and the people who make up the GWIC community. Uh, Rashada Timke is someone who I've followed virtually almost since we started this podcast. She is the Compliance Risk Management Officer and a VP at Citibank. She's, she's not an attorney, but she is an advocate. She's an advocate for taking her retail background and applying it to her compliance work, particularly for community outreach and the importance of diversity, equality, and inclusion, DEI, which is so critically important these days. She's also just been one of our biggest cheerleaders and somebody I'm just so thrilled that we can introduce to all of you and that is a part and be a part of the podcast. So Rashada, thank you so much for being here and really appreciate it. So let's just start with your background and talk about how you have gotten to where you are right now. Well, first of all, I just have to thank you, Lisa, both you and Mary for just, you know, creating, you know, this platform um, to really provide some exposure to the amazing, you know, compliance professionals um, that are out there. And I remember becoming um, acquainted with the podcast and you all through LinkedIn. Um, I found you all and I believe I found you in November or um, October, October, November. And I was just blown away that this even existed, that I could have, you know, access, you know, to these podcast episodes and learn more about the background of others. And I never would have imagined that I would be on the podcast. So this is still surreal, but I did just want to just take a moment to, to thank you guys, number one, for creating, seeing the need for this platform. And then obviously I'm beyond honored to be a part of this. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. I had no idea, but I just, I, I will take any sort of compliment. We're very, we're really proud of this, but we're really mostly proud of the community. And once we all, we started following you, like we are so honored you're here too. So thank you. Thank you. So um, my background. So I, uh, as you mentioned, I did start out in the retail field. Um, I um, actually believe I joined the ranks of uh, a number of amazing compliance professionals that did not um, originally possess a lifelong dream of pursuing a career in compliance. Um, and so uh, I chose my um, my initial career kind of based on job outlook, right? So I went to college, first-generation college student, um, didn't really have a roadmap, Um And I basically um, chose finance because I felt like it would give me more job security. And so fortunately, I was um, fortunate to get recruited uh, straight out of college for a management associate program with a regional banking institution. And I ended up going into um, the consumer line of business um, training as an assistant branch manager, um, which, as you know, is kind of equal parts operations and sales. And so I was prepared for that through training. But what I wasn't prepared for was the level of um, fraud attempts that would occur through my tenure at my particular branch. So, you know, in addition to the occasional counterfeit 
bill or um, check fraud um, that we were actually kind of prepared for through our standard training, income tax fraud like became rampant during my time. And so Florida actually led the nation in identity theft-based tax return fraud. So obviously fraud prevention naturally became a priority. And through that is kind of how I started to develop some of um, the experience that I would later be able to leverage as I transition into compliance. So um, obviously, you know, as uh, the first line of defense, I had to develop, you know, my no KYC, so know your customer, enhance due diligence, um, and just really get into that, that uh, first line of defense bag. So I think that's what kind of opened my lens um, beyond kind of like the sales and operational piece and helped me to develop a more balanced objective of meeting the client needs while protecting the bank. So um, sales did not necessarily resonate with me. So when it was time to pivot, I was able to leverage those fraud prevention skills to kind of land myself a role as a sanctions compliance analyst. And you stayed in and around some of the sanctions area and compliance area. How did you end up building from there? Yeah, so I think... um, for me, sanctions compliance was such a, um, a naturally intriguing space. Um, so I ended up staying within sanctions compliance for about five years. I believe I was, um, I, you know, was when I first transitioned with um, my uh, first organization, I was there for about two and a half years. And then I made more of a lateral move to the organization I'm with now. Um, But the difference between the two organizations was that my current organization, um, when it came to our sanctions group, we kind of wore a lot of hats. Um, So instead of just kind of, you know, screening transactions, we also, you know, had to manage the reporting piece of that, um, you know, some compliance awareness pieces, some training. So that really helped me to expand my knowledge base and develop like further skills that I could leverage, you know, in this risk management and compliance role. So, yeah, that's how I was able to kind of transition into the role I'm in now um, as a part of um, an escalation team. Okay. And um, one of the things, and I, I want to kind of you just mentioned the word pivot. So I'm going to pivot a little bit about some of the things that you're passionate about and using your role for. Um, One of the things in that area is community outreach. And can you talk about that a bit? And also, you know, one of the other things we talked about was you being um, a first-generation college graduate. So how has that all impacted you? Yeah. So I would say that my drive for community outreach actually developed um, during my time at the branch. So we were actually located in a low to moderate income area at the time. And so a lot of my community service came from a need to meet the Community Reinvestment Act obligations, so those CRA requirements. And so I volunteered to teach students um, at the local um, Title I elementary school. And it was just super rewarding to see how engaged the children could be when you just take the time and make the information more relatable. And I think it meant a lot to me to be able to provide that level of representation also as a banking professional. So, um, while initially much of the community outreach was initiated through work, 
um, my convictions, kind of my own personal convictions really started to, um, to kick in, you know, when it came to being of service. Um, and that really started to go into high gear last year, actually, um, which is ironic because when you think about it, you know, with, with the pandemic, um, last year wasn't exactly the ideal environment, you know, conducted to traditional forms of outreach, but what ended up happening is, um, the, the space started to transform and um, organizations had to become more innovative, um, which led to those remote opportunities. And, you know, as a mom, there would be times I really wanted to volunteer, but it, there were, you know, you know, uh, conflicts with commuting and who's going to pick up, you know, my daughter from school. And so those virtual opportunities really um, came, you know, at the perfect time. And, um, I, I really, there was no excuse for not getting involved and, in, in, you know, trying to make an impact. So I think um, with 2020, it, it led to a lot of introspection for me. And, and between the pandemic and the racial reckoning that took place that last summer, it led to me, you know, doing a lot of deep reflection and challenging myself to show up more for others in tangible ways um, and kind of challenge myself to be an advocate that I wanted to see in my community and more deliberate, deliberate, um, in a more deliberate manner. And so that, you know, led to me becoming what was called a, a reading all-star, um, with, um, the United Way. And so I would log off from work and then I would log in to a Zoom and, and read with a third grader, um, once a week, um, for the entire school year. And, um, you know, it, it was it was just such a rewarding experience um, just to see what, you know, 30 minutes, you may not think that it's much, but it really can make a difference and it can make a lasting impression. You know, the the engagement and the way that you sow into, you know, the potential of someone else. And so, yeah, I think the community outreach really started to blossom for me because at one time I thought I had to, like, make it before I could make an impact, if that makes sense. And I know like in hindsight for me, it's like, that was so silly, but I thought I had to have like more credibility, like a title um, in order for me to make a meaningful impact. And what ended up happening is I realized it was the exact opposite and that I couldn't afford to wait. And so, you know, that led to me being more intentional about serving as a mentor um, and kind of even getting more involved internally within my organization. So I guess I'll pause there because I could go on. <laughs> I was going to actually mention a couple things about that. I think, first of all, I think we often do that it, it, when it comes to anything, when you think about a title or where you are in your career. And then even in personal things or personal lives, you know, when I've had struggles professionally, I, I wonder if people think differently or concerns. And then I realized, actually, I don't think about that with the people I care about. They're like that about me. And professionally, you know, the fact that you contribute no matter what, I, it is a hard, like, like hump to get over at times, but I think we all have a little bit about it. It may, you know, relate to imposter syndrome. But with that part said, I want to talk a little bit about um, how the volunteering and the community outreach has also impacted your view on either work or on your work as a, in ethics and compliance or compliance, you know, officer. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, 
when it comes to the type of environments that you want to create, um, the culture that you want to cultivate within your organization, I think that community is a big part of that. Um, making people feel um, valued, feel included, um, feel as if their input matters. Um, I can see a lot of parallels in the community outreach that I do because I'm not going into these opportunities thinking that I'm about to save the day. I'm going into these opportunities, you know, with a desire to partner with individuals, um, acknowledge the work that they're bringing to things and figure out how we can together, you know, make a collective impact. And so I think that is the same type of perspective that you could bring, you know, inside an organization. Um, you could, you know, large scale or small scale when you, when you kind of drill deep down into your own individual team, you want to create that, you know, psychological safety. I know that's, you know, become a big thing, but I really do believe that when you um, come into a space and you're acknowledging what everyone's bringing to the table um, and you are, you know, willing to leverage their strengths um, and help develop any, you know, areas of opportunity, I think that is what really opens things up to create spaces for innovation and to create spaces for, for progress. Um, and so I think for me, um, that too lends itself to individuals feeling more confident to speak up when there may be concerns, um, when there may be items that are worth, you know, escalating higher. But I think if, if you don't have that sense of community, if you don't have that, um, the comfort level, or you don't feel like, you know, your input matters, then that could be a deterrent even. And so I think, you know, there, there is so much that I've been able to discover and kind of, you know, connect, um, between my, my, uh, community outreach work and then kind of bringing it back to, to the compliance lens as well. So I hope that makes sense. It does. I, I, I completely understand because you're able to connect, you know, different questions, needs and, and building community in lots of different contexts. Um, you know, I also think all things like that help you also keep perspective on the rest of the world and the problems that you're, you know, having at work or other things mm -hmm. like that as well, you know, because everyone has significant things going on in their lives. They're different. They all deserve a tremendous amount of respect. And suddenly, what was it? The, at least I see this sometimes when I am doing more community related things. What, what was seemed like the end of the world three hours ago in my job, and it's still important. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, is one of many things going on in the rest of the world, and kind of you, know, for lack of a better word for me, kind of like you know, hits me back in the face and says, "You, know, this, this is not, you know, this is not world ending. You, you know, right. next meal is coming from. You know, certain things. Mm -hmm. You'll get through this. It's it's." Sounds a little self-indulgent, but in some ways, I think many of us, because we care so much about, you know, ethics and compliance, get really caught up in what's happening every day. So, mm -hmm. no, I completely, completely agree. And I think, you know, another thing that drives my, you know, convictions when it comes to um, community outreach is also kind of being a model for my daughter and wanting her to develop kind of the same conviction to serve in you know, realizing that she has been blessed to be in a position to serve, right? Um, 
and to be in a position to to partner with people treating you know everyone with dignity but also leveraging any privilege that she may have you know for the greater good and i think you know one of the best ways to do that is to be an example so yeah and and i think that you know that's really excellent and it's a great way to think about it especially in situations where you can be one of examples of lots of different examples for different people working within communities. And I think that touches on another point that I know is really important to you and something that Mary and I really are constantly trying to work on is, and that is making the you know, ethics and compliance community more inclusive. We have this, this um, platform and we try to spotlight diversity in many different ways, um, you know, whether it's, you know, age, race, a little less than gender. We are the great women in compliance, but we do <laughs> you know, have, but, you know, we, we really think it's important. And one of the things I've noticed that you taught, chime in on, on LinkedIn and in other places and become more active in is DEI. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about your thoughts about that a, a little bit and how you have gotten more engaged? You mentioned earlier in the past year. Um, and so if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, as you alluded to, um, a lot of my engagement um, really um, was activated last last year. So, you know, summer 2020 was was a pivotal moment for me and I imagine many others. And it, at, at the time, it honestly felt traumatic in a way, you know, to see kind of these sadly familiar scenarios, you know, involving you know, the blatant mistreatment of people of color and more specifically Black people play out over and over again. And I think for me, one of the hardest things to deal with at the time was kind of a sense of powerlessness. And I think one of the ways that I learned to cope with that was to figure out a way of reframing um, and ways that I could shift a feeling of defeat and hopelessness Um, And so for me, that meant developing a more informed perspective and then using that knowledge and information to speak up. So especially when it came to, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, I just became a lot more intentional and deliberate about how I spent my time. Um, And fortunately, I was able to tap into a number of amazing resources Um, some of which I found on LinkedIn. Um, And so um, one in particular, um, Living Corporate, was one that actually continues to be a resource to this day. And so I think for me, it was important to um, inform myself, you know, Um, and, you know, sometimes people are like, well, how do you have the time? But you'll make time for those things that you you think are important. And so, um, again, kind of bringing it back to my daughter, it was also about empowering her as well. And so I would first need to gain the knowledge in order to do that, you know, be more intentional about that. So I think that's what really, that was the impetus of my engagement around DEI. Um, And have you brought that into your, you know, into your work and your job and has it kind of changed some of the ways you're either perceiving things or, you know, priorities or anything along those lines? Absolutely. So I would say that um, it has um, definitely made me more aware of um, kind of like dynamics and more intentional about ways that I can um, increase awareness, you know, within the organization and um, about the relevance of 
you know, increasing that awareness within the organization. So um, I actually serve as um, the community outreach co-chair for the Black Heritage Network. And um, so that is an, an internal kind of um, employee resource group that we have in each location. Um, each site has its own chapter. And so I am the community outreach co-chair for um for Tampa. And so even though that's community outreach, it's also um, bringing a level of awareness. And so be, due to the remote environment, we're not able to engage in the same traditional ways that we um, were able to prior to. And so it, it, it made us expand our scope of what community is. And so that meant serving our internal community, like our, our internal um, colleagues. And so what that meant for us is we were able to um, collaborate with other um, chapters to put on a virtual Juneteenth event. And that event, you know, included a panel of very senior individuals and it was a diverse panel and they were able to speak very candidly, not only about their understanding of Juneteenth and it's, it's, it's importance and it's continued relevance, but also about topics that, you know, continue to, you know, impact our society and, you know, those implications on our organization internally. And so I think that, you know, being able to understand that, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is relevant um, to the workplace um, and to compliance, that has given me more confidence to, you know, speak about it and to um, be intentional about creating spaces, even in work, where people can have these conversations and become more informed. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked before about organization called uh, NABCROMP, which is the National Association of Black Compliance Risk um, and something professionals. I'm, I'm not always great, but what mm -hmm. I really like about the organization and I, I support is, is the theory also behind the idea of if you don't have a diverse table, you're not actually looking at risks appropriately because you're missing mm -hmm. voices. And right. You're, I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I try to think about a lot. I'm in a constant learning mode myself. Um, and every time I think I've learned something, it's challenged or is really thinking about, because I do a lot of investigations, is implicit bias. Like everybody right. has their own views. And mm -hmm. are my, am I stepping away from those? And, and to be fair, I don't do as many of the HR type issues, although I do occasionally. But I, you know, I think it's really important that we all kind of reflect on what are true risks and what are, and not just looking at it like this is the right thing to do because it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to learn and be better. And I'm, you know, like I said, any of us should be still working on that. And, and I mean, I felt the same way both in last summer and the all of last year and then living in Washington around uh, January 6th. Um, for anyone who's listening, if you think it didn't happen, you weren't living here. Um, <laughs> but with that said, watching treatment, watching behaviors. But in any event, I think what's really also important to it is looking at it from our practical lens. You're missing the, your, the huge number of people out there who are either your colleagues and or your customers. And I think right. that that's mm -hmm. an important thing. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. But, you know, with that, and I sort of talk about that for a second to talk a little bit about 
you know, where we are in ethics and compliance and what, what you're seeing as how to uh, move forward. Um, what do you see from you know, your day-to-day viewpoint and things that you've been learning and leading for us to do next? Yeah, so um, I think there's been a, a bit of buzz um, regarding kind of, you know, we think of ethics and compliance. There's oftentimes, you know, more of a focus on compliance because it's it's way easier to define and, and implement um, when it comes to just remaining in compliance from a business perspective. But the ethics piece can be a bit more um, ambiguous. Um, and so I think, you know, when I kind of envision how compliance will evolve going forward, my initial thoughts are around creating an equal emphasis on ethics. Um, but I, I, I think it's, I, I want to be fair and acknowledge that, you know, it can be challenging. I actually encountered a post um, by um, an individual named Allison Taylor which really detailed just how challenging it can be to discuss ethics in business. And so I don't want to kind of oversimplify the solution, but I definitely think it has to go beyond that standard annual mandatory training and instead kind of evolve into a topic that truly remains on the agenda. Um, And so that means creating opportunities and creating a space to keep the conversation going, discuss both, you know, discussing both the wins and any losses when it comes to ethical decision-making or ethical behavior uh, made um, or taking place within our organization. So I think when we, when we think about how compliance is going to evolve, really honing in and leveraging those lessons learned in a more transparent manner. Uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And you have one thing with, in common with Allison Taylor, you may not have known before she, or if you listened to her, she was one, she's also been on Great Women in Compliance. So you two are in the same room on that. And she is amazing. Wow. Yeah. She, I mean, I mean the, yeah, I mean, I think ethical decision-making is the thing that is most important for us to focus on, even as compliance mm-hmm. professionals, because of exactly what you're saying and thinking about. Um, so, you know, expanding the viewpoint from just what is the law, what is the regulation, mm-hmm. and we do it, as opposed to say to people, how do you understand that? What does this mean to you? Um, and here's why you can't do X, Y, or Z, because a lot of times people don't realize why something may be wrong. And, mm-hmm. and they may not realize the big picture. And just the conversation, all of a sudden, the wait, I didn't think about it that way. Absolutely. You know, triggers it. But with that also, because another one of you know my blind spots is I am a lawyer. But one mm-hmm. of the things about that is that for us, it is really important, I think, to build a community that's not just a bunch of lawyers who cho- cho- you know found a different part and love compliance. So mm-hmm. I know that's something you've talked about as well, um, is expanding, not, you know, both in diversity in terms of many things, including legal background. Right. Yeah. And um, to be honest, although, you know, I was fortunate to transition into compliance, I think, you know, when I looked at my career trajectory, a part of me was inclined to kind of temper my my expectations and my um, ambition because number one, um, at the time, it, it seemed that most, you know, senior level compliance professionals had legal backgrounds and I had, and you know, number two, I had no intention of going back to school, (laughs) you know, was not going to obtain the JD. And so, um, 
I think one of the things that I am most um, in, you know, excited about is that the landscape does appear to be expanding. And, uh, you know, in the spirit of inclusion, there really does seem to be um, an effort to really tap into the wealth of talent beyond the legal realm. So I absolutely welcome that. Yeah. So, you know, I hope that that continues as well. I think that it, I think, I think that it is helpful to have some lawyers involved on the team, but I mm-hmm. think it's important to have a, a diverse team with lots of different talents, you know, friends in accounting, HR, other things, because of exactly keeping our, you know, risks and making it a, a human side of it. Um, so before we close off, we've talked a lot about your daughter. And if you were going to give her a piece of advice that you wish you knew, you know, on your first day, either at your first job or something else, like the one thing you you would think about, I always love to know about this, that might have saved you, you know, 20 years or 10 years of something you're to, of stress. I mean, mm-hmm. do you have one of those kind of points in your mind? One of mine is I figured everyone knew more than me. And then I realized that some of them were just faking it a lot better <laughs> and it's not the end of the world. I mean, I would be sure that everyone in the room knew more than me. And then I realized a lot of them were pretending. I wish I could tell, you know, my, my younger self that. So do you have one of yeah. those you think about for your daughter? Yeah, man, if I could tell her, you know, one thing, it would be to um, resist the urge to limit yourself. Um, I think sometimes, especially when we enter into new, you know, roles or, you know, new spaces, the learning curve in itself can just be so intimidating. And um, it can kind of I don't want to seem, you know, dramatic, but it can be paralyzing and and at to an extent, um, and it can make you question, you know, your own abilities, your own capabilities, your own capacity to really, you know, own the challenge. And so, I think one of the things that I have even had to remind myself is that you have a demonstrated ability to learn new things. So even if this is an entirely new space you, you, you can learn it. Like there, there's plenty of evidence that you can point to, to show that you have the capacity to learn not only, you know, the, um, learning the basics, but to expand and create efficiencies. And so don't forget, you know, that those tools that you possess and those talents and that potential that you possess, you know, just because you're in a new space and you may feel a bit intimidated, you know, really embrace that learning curve and leverage, you know, the potential and the talent that you have to make things, you know, better. So, you know, just don't discount yourself. Yeah, no, that is great advice. And that's great advice for your daughter and for our community. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so thrilled. Um, And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 